Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. We've got Alan Seppenwall, and he's reading with Justin Halpern. They're going to discuss the book for um, about half an hour, and then thank you very much. Here we go. Justin Halpern is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Shit My Dad Says, inspired by his massively popular Twitter feed. He lives with his wife in Los Angeles. And Alan Seppenwall is the chief TV critic for Rolling Stone and the author of Breaking Bad 101. His thoughts on television have appeared in the New York Times, Time, and Variety. He lives in New Jersey. Uh, please join me in welcoming Alan and Justin. Crowd, Alan. It is. Thanks for coming, guys, on a Sunday afternoon. We appreciate it. Uh, so I will. Uh, I'm going to talk to Alan for a little bit, and then we'll open up for questions. Real quick, how I met Alan, which I think is a funny story. I uh, oh, no. had a very terrible television show, and Alan wrote a very harsh review of it. <laughs> and I did. And when I read the review, I was like, "This is exactly spot on." <laughs> I was like, he pointed out every single way that the show actually is terrible. Uh, and I respected it. But the thing that I loved about it was that it was incredibly thoughtful. It was like this very thoughtful review of this really bad TV show. And I was really impressed by it. And I reached out to him to say, in a weird way, thank you for giving such a thoughtful review to this piece of trash. Uh, <laughs> And I think that's one of the reasons why I just I, I became such a fan of Alan is if you read his work, I always say he writes about TV the way that TV writers think about TV. There's a lot of television criticism that I feel like feels like it's kind of looking at it as a piece of art, but they haven't really been able to like dig into why it's made the way it's made, and Alan just totally gets that. And so this Sopranos book that he did... Uh, if you, I mean, it's so comprehensive, but you're, you're like, it feels like you're in the writer's room when you read it, when you read your, your essays in it. And I think it's, it's really uh, brilliant. I wanted to start off by talking about, asking you to talk about the interview you did with Milch where he, uh, Chase, sorry, Chase, <laughs> you've done a lot of Milch. I know. Uh, where he basically starts telling you the reason that he ended the show the way that he did. And, and can you talk a little bit about your interview with David? Okay. So Matt Seitz and I, who wrote this book, we had covered the show for the Star-Ledger, which is the paper at the end of Tony's driveway, uh, for years. We both had long-standing relationships with David Chase. Uh, and uh, he agreed to do a series of interviews with us about, um, about the show. And we were going to do one interview per season, about 90 minutes each. And we, we kept saying to each other, well, is he going to want to talk about the ending? He never does. And so we said, all right, well, we'll we're going to game plan this eventually. And so we did the interview for season one, and he left the restaurant. We said, all right, well, what are we going to do about the ending? Let's figure it out later. Season two, same thing. We just kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And one of the things I always loved about The Sopranos is 
Remember how like things would always happen either before or after you expected them to? Like like Richie April dies at the end, like in the next to last episode of season two, and it's not even Tony that does it. You know, they, they would do things like that. That's what happened to us with the ending uh, and David Chase. We're doing the next to last interview with him. We still had no kind of battle plan whatsoever for how to deal with the ending. And we're just sort of talking in general about like, well, you're not far from ending the show at this point. What are you thinking about? And David, I guess, at this point was so comfortable with us. We'd done so many of these in a row that he said basically without thinking, well, you know, I had that death scene in my mind for about two years before we actually shot it. And he keeps going for another minute or two. And meanwhile, Matt and I are on the other side of the table kind of communicating telepathically with one another. Like, Matt, he just said death scene. And Matt's like, I know. And I'm like, should we say anything? And, you know, it's just, it's all in the expression. And I was terrified to bring it up because I figured if I said it, Chase would shut down. He would leave the interview. Like, he had a certain degree of veto power over what the content in the book was going to be. He probably couldn't have taken this out, but it could have been a problem. Uh, and so I was a little timid. And Matt, God bless him, as soon as David is done talking, says, David, you realize you just said death scene. And David says, I did? And we both said in unison, yes. <laughs> and there's a very long pause. And David's eyes narrow, and he says, fuck you guys. <laughs> And then, but that's, that wasn't the best part, because it was not a gotcha. It turned out, we, he then talked about the ending for 45 minutes, and it's all in the book, starting on, I think, page 389. But when he said death scene, he was actually not talking about the scene in the ice cream parlor that ends the show. He had, like, a different idea a couple years earlier, when Johnny Sack was still a character on it, where, again, New York and New Jersey were going to go to war, New York would be winning, Tony has to go to, like, basically grovel before Johnny Sack to plead for his life. And they were going to go through, the last shot of the show was going to be Tony driving eastbound through the Lincoln Tunnel in a mirror of how the opening credits began. Uh, and then it was going to cut to black. And the implication being, Tony went to this meeting and never made it out alive. And Chase said, but then I changed my mind because that felt a little too literal. And we talked for a long time. And so, like, he never comes, comes right out, if you read the book, and says, this is what the ice cream parlor scene, like, says happens. But he talked a lot about what it meant. Which, I th which, frankly, is to me the more interesting thing about the ending and about what David Chase does in general. Yeah, I mean, you got him to talk about how he, he sort of viewed it as just like time is precious, right? And, that, yeah. and you, anyone could be whacked at any moment, and that's, that's what he wanted to get across, right? Yes, we are, we are all here on borrowed time, and someone like Tony Soprano's time is a bit more borrowed than the rest of us. But like this could happen at any moment, and he wanted you to feel that, and that's why every, so many people are so convinced he must have died because that's what that scene feels like. It feels like he's about to die. But does he? We don't know. So that was always the question, I think, for most of the fans was what happened, right? That was the yeah. thing we all wanted to know. But for you, when you get to sit down with him and talk to him about stuff, like what was the one thing you wanted him to explain to you about The Sopranos? Well, I was curious if he was going to talk about the ending at all. Because, again, like I've done other books where I've interviewed him about this, like Revolution was televised. And I remember during the long interview we did for that, I said, so do you want to talk about the ending? And he thought about it for about five seconds and said, no. And then we moved on. So, um, but I was just mainly interested in him looking, looking back on it all these years later. Because um, the show was 20, almost 20 years old. That's why we did the book for the anniversary. Uh, he hadn't rewatched it. And every now and then we would do an interview. He never rewatched the show? Well, he didn't rewatch it recently. 
like he rewatched it at the time, but it's been years. So there would be times when I would be interviewing him, and I was mainly the one as asking the questions, and he would like just completely have forgotten about something I brought up. <laughs> and because you know it's a long time, he's in his seventies, it's okay. And I would remind him, and immediately he would get it, but he did every once in a while sort of beat himself up and say, man, I wish I had binged all of this before we began. <laughs> but no, but what I found was, like, I came loaded for bear with all of these really nerdy questions about, like, when did this happen? What was the motivation for this? Was this actor causing trouble? You know, was, was it true that Robert Lozier was having trouble remembering his lines, and that's why Feech goes back to jail, and this and that and the other thing? Um, and mostly he didn't answer that, and some of it's because he didn't remember, but some of it is because that's not what he cared about. And instead, what he was really good about was remembering kind of the emotion he was having when he was making all of these different decisions. And it was like we'd be sitting there and he would go into a trance and travel back, and you could almost feel like he was back in the writer's room with you know Terry Winter and all those guys, recalling the conversations they were having, you know. Should Carmela and Furio sleep together? You know, do we have to kill off Tony Blundetto? Do we have to do this and that? And like the emotion of it was really palpable, and I felt like I understood his process a lot better at the end of it than I did before. So one thing about that show that I think was so different at the time was that it was one of the first like dark dramas that had a lot of comedy in it. And I've heard you talk about it before, like that the, some of the most successful dramas have these like moments of real levity in it but yeah. for me like watching it and, and I make my living as a comedy writer like there are such like well-turned jokes in the show and in a lot of the plots like function almost like sitcom plots was he did he ever talk about like why there was so much comedy in The Sopranos? Well, the show was originally intended to be largely a comedy. I mean, he, th he thought of it as, as a live-action Simpsons. That's what <laughs> was, Yes. Uh, you know, and Steve Van Zandt used to call it uh, gangster honeymooners, um, which, al which also seems pretty accurate. Steve Van Zandt, by the way, and this is relevant to this, was like the runner-up to play Tony. There were three finalists to play that role. One was Gandolfini, who obviously got it. One was Michael Rispoli, who wound up playing Jackie April Sr. for a few episodes. And the other was Van Zandt, because Chase sort of intended this to be a very dark comedy. And Gandolfini comes in... Uh, and I'm not remembering all the details, it's, it's, it's in the book, but like he comes in, he tanks the audition, it's going very badly, he gets up in the middle of it, says, I'm sorry, I have to go, I can't do this right now, I'll call the reschedule, he just walks out of the audition. But there was something that he was doing that like Chase was really fascinated by, and like a couple days later, Gandolfini calls like, you know, Chase's office and says, I'm sorry, I can't do this, my, I'm sorry I had to leave, my mother just died. His mother had died like 10 years earlier, he's just inventing this <laughs> excuse. And he's just doing like everything he possibly can to get out of having to play this role, which he would then talk about throughout the rest of his life as a really hard one for him to play, you know, physically and emotionally. It like he couldn't turn it off in the way that somebody like Edie Falco could. But so he gets the job because he was just so clearly better than everybody else. And they're shooting the pilot, and there's a scene in the first episode where Christopher mentions that his cousin's uh, girlfriend is a development girl and is gonna you know help him write a mob screenplay. In the script, Tony is supposed to like l slap him playfully across the face and say, what the hell are you thinking about? You know, just sort of busting his chops. Gandolfini grabs Michael Imperioli by the lapels, picks him up, shoves him against a wall, and screams at him. And David Chase is watching this and says, oh my God, this is what the show is. Like he, he took the, the show completely changed tonal direction because of Gandolfini's performance. But because like there was all this comedy in the DNA to begin with, 
it was really easy for it to be funny on top of having people like Van Zant and Tony Sirico who were just so incredibly funny to begin with. Yeah, it, 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 there are so many moments where, you know, Gandolfini will just turn from this really dark performance into this, like, unbelievable comedic turn. And, and I wonder how much of that, like, was on the page and how much of it was Gandolfini. Do you know, like, how much improvis- improvisation was in the yeah, show? There's, there's, other than that one moment and some things here and there, Chase's, Chase sort of gets his back up whenever you suggest that, like, other people brought ideas to him. <laughs> other people changed things. The, the story I always remember him telling, I don't even, he, he's never told me who it was about, but it's, an actor one day is complaining to him, well, my character would never say this. And Chase gives him this look and says, who says it was your character? You know, <laughs> like this was, he is, I, I heard a lot of grousing over the years from Sopranos actors, like they were kept in the dark about what was going to happen, especially as the show went on and there were more and more leaks about it. Um, but, the, you know, I did this interview with him uh, for Revolution Was Televised about Matt Weiner for the Mad Men chapter, and I kept sort of, you know, trying to basically feed him like, set him up to say, like, complimentary things about Matt, you know, and, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, and he loves Matt, and, you know, Matt, Matt is his protege and all of that, but um, I kept saying, well, you know, well, what are some of the ideas that he brought to Sopranos, and Chase was like, none, all of those, the ideas on the show were mine, like, the right, no, there were, there were writers on the show who were really good at things, like, Terry Winter was really great at writing the mob stuff, and you could assign him a mob script, and he could go and do that. And, you know, Weiner was really good at some of the dream imagery and other things. And you could assign him that. But, like, the core ideas were all coming from Chase originally. And so he didn't really brook improvisations. The only time he ever took a suggestion from an actor was when Joe Ganiscoli brought him this article about, like, uh, a closeted gay mobster and said, hey, maybe Vito could be gay. Uh, and then they wrote that into the show. And then he sees the scene. Uh, and he was not pleased with the position Vito was in. And he's like, David, that's, that's not what I had in mind. <laughs> um, but yeah, mostly it was, you know, it was a very tightly controlled set. So just sort of after The Sopranos came out, I feel like it gave license to all of the writers in Hollywood to say, like, I'm going to write the next anti-hero. And, and I wonder, and some of them, there was obviously a lot of bad rip-offs. Oh. A ton. Uh, there which, still are. <laughs> right. I saw a billboard for one on my way here. We won't mention that. I might know that person. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but what were, what do you feel were some of the shows that came after The Sopranos that probably wouldn't exist if The Sopranos hadn't been what it was? All of them? No, I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's fair. That, no, that's an overstatement. But like, literally, I think that this is the most influential scripted TV show since I Love Lucy. Like, just, there's so much that The Sopranos did that the business did not allow before it that the business did not believe was even possible to do. Like serialized storytelling, like having an anti-hero or an outright villain as the main character, like doing dream imagery, sort of moral complexity, narrative complexity, all of these things that are like part and parcel of every show you watch on Netflix now, of everything you watch on any streaming network, on most of uh, pay and basic cable, even filtering down to a lot of broadcast TV. Like all of the, I remember before, uh, a couple years before The Sopranos debuted, the NBC had this great show called Homicide Life on the Street, the cop show. Okay. Yeah, De- Des, my friend back there, I, we met through a mutual fandom of Homicide. And NBC was infamous. They would always show episodes of that out of order. And you could tell they were out of order because, like, a character 
would be talked about being dead in an episode before they aired the episode where he died. <laughs> they would do things like that. And so I would talk to the heads of NBC at the time. I was like, you know, Warren, what are you doing here? Like, you're confusing people. And they would say they had research that showed that even the most passionate fan of a show watched one out of every four episodes. So that, like, continuity was not something that people in television really thought much about. You know, serialization was a dirty word. You know, when 24 was being pitched, Gail Berman had to kind of lie to the, you know, the, the chairman of Fox and say, no, there'll be standalone stories in every episode. You don't have to worry about that. <laughs> They'll just happen to take place between 12 and 1. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because yeah. otherwise, you know. And now it's like people get mad if a show isn't serialized. Like, it's really turned in a huge way. But, you know, to more specific, like, obvious descendants, there's Mad Men, there's Breaking Bad. You know, those are the two big ones. There's Boardwalk Empire. Um, you know, now there's Ozark. There's, there's, a, there's a whole bunch. Um, Ray Donovan. You know, there's a lot that I sort of refer to as the bastard sons of Tony Soprano. And some of them are great. Some of them are less great. Uh, and that's okay. I definitely think that, like, the business sometimes took the lessons of the show a little too literally. It's like, okay, we need to have an anti-hero. We need to have crime. We need to have cursing. We need to have violence. If we can have scenes in a strip club, that would be great. Like sort of just <laughs> taking all of the most superficial elements of the show as opposed to like those things are interesting things about The Sopranos, especially if you're watching it in 1999 when they were like a, such a cold you know, slap in the face. But that's not what made the show great. What made the show great was Gandolfini and Edie Falco and Lorraine Bracco and the acting. What made the show great was the characterization, just how deeply you got to understand the, the core characters of the show. What made it great was how great it looked, um, you know, just sort of how deep the writing felt, you know, how strong it was on theme, also how funny it was, which a lot of these shows have not learned that lesson of. A lot of these anti-hero shows are so glum and dour, and it's like, we demand you take us seriously. <laughs> when, you know, it's, you don't need humor to be a great show, but it, it doesn't hurt, so... And has have you ever talked to Chase about like does he talk about shows that he enjoys that have come after Sopranos? Like, is he a fan of anything that's on? I mean, he, he likes he likes Mad Men. He likes Boardwalk Empire because two of his proteges made those shows. He doesn't watch a lot of other TV. He didn't really like TV. Um, he'd been working in TV for about almost twenty years when The Sopranos was created. He was basically looking to get out of the business altogether. He didn't think um, anyone was going to make the show. When they made it, he didn't want HBO to pick it up because he didn't want. It. No, he didn't like he he literally hoped that he could produce the pilot. HBO would decide it was not for them. He would then go and raise money to like film a second hour and turn it into a movie and take it to Cannes. That was his dream because he just didn't believe that TV would allow him to do what he ultimately did with it. But even having done all that, he's still sort of very jaded about television in general. Um, well, to talk about that for a second, because when I watch the show, it feels like working in the business, I, uh, when I'm watching TV shows, I can always feel the network notes. Like, I can yes. watch it and, like, oh, yeah, I know I know who said something right there to tell the writers <laughs> to do that. And Sopranos was really the first show, besides Oz, where I was like, I don't feel like anybody gave any notes to this. Do you know anything about, like, the sort of process that they had with HBO? Well, HBO was like the Wild West back then because they had they'd done a few shows here and there, and Larry Sanders is obviously a great one, and they'd done Dream On. They'd done O.J. Simpson, uh, First and Ten, a football comedy with O.J. Simpson, um, including an episode where, like, he bangs on his ex-wife's front door demanding to get inside. So that's one that they... <laughs> it's aged well. Yes, they will never rerun that one. But um, 
HBO was new to this, like, to taking it seriously. Like, it was no longer a hobby. They were doing it, but it was still new enough that they didn't really care, and they are like, we'll let Tom Fontana, we'll let David Chase do what he wants. But even early on, they stayed, would give a note here and there. So college, sort of the episode where The Sopranos becomes The Sopranos, where Tony takes Meadow uh, through New England and he runs into Febby the informant and all of that. Um, HBO did not want Tony to kill the informant. Uh, they were like adamant. They said, David, if he kills this guy, the audience is going to abandon the show. And David said, we've been making a mob show. We've done four episodes. Our lead hasn't killed anybody. He's now going to run across someone who betrayed the family. If he doesn't kill him, that's what's going to make the audience like feel betrayed and walk away because they'll think that this guy is just full of it. And he won the argument, and he was right. And that was like the the week after that aired was when I started hearing about the show outside of like my professional circles. People would just start saying, "Hey, have you seen the show The Sopranos?" And it was because of that episode and because of that choice, I think. All right, let's uh, let's why don't we open it up, shall yeah, we? We can, take, we can take questions, sure. What's up, Dave? Uh, have you seen any of the prequel yet? And no. Are you, okay. And are you excited for it, or are you keeping your expectations low? Here is what I will say: I'm generally very agnostic to anti this trend of revivals. Like most of these have been either not good or just kind of okay. I, I think there are certain exceptions can be made. Deadwood was obviously one of those. Here is why I'm okay with this, because I know David, and I know he doesn't need the money. He doesn't need the attention. Uh, he is fiercely protective of the legacy of this show because he knows, like, this, you know, this is what he will be remembered for. So if he comes back and this movie stinks, it, it's one thing that, like, the other movie he made, Not Fade Away, which I like, got kind of a mixed reaction and nobody saw it. That, that doesn't really impact so much on The Sopranos, even though Gandolfini's in it. If he makes a movie featuring, you know, Michael Gandolfini as the young Tony, featuring, you know, Dickie Moltisanti, young Uncle Junior, young Johnny Boy, young Livia, and it's bad, that is bad for the legacy of The Sopranos. It's going to cause, and one of the reasons he wanted to do the interviews for the book, despite the fact that he hates talking about the show, is because he felt like The Sopranos was being forgotten a little bit. And he wanted to bring it back into the conversation, and it's been kind of gratifying to both me and obviously to him that it has. So I don't think he would do this if he thought if it was just a cash-in job. Right. That doesn't that doesn't guarantee that it's going to be good. Sure. But I feel like it's he's got to be pretty confident, and it's coming from a good place. Uh, and Alan Taylor is a, is a really good director for that show, uh, and now for this, and the cast that he's assembled is pretty incredible, even though we don't know who most of them are playing. Right, right. And the idea of Jim's son playing young Tony at some point in the movie, that's fascinating. And I've been watching him on the deuce, and he looks so much like his dad that, yeah, it's going to be it's gonna be weird, but I'm, most, I'm cautiously excited. Okay. Yes. Anything else? I mean, he likes Scorsese. He has mixed feelings about The Godfather, which sort of surprised me, but he, go, he goes into that in detail. He's come to really like the movie, but I remember he said when he saw it the first time, he really didn't, despite having loved the book. His influences are more sort of like French New Wave cinema of the 60s. Um, you know, what he sort of refers to as like the, these real head-scratcher films. You know, his favorite experiences, you know, he went and he saw Blowout, uh, 
blow up, sorry, not blow out, uh, blow up with his, you know, then girlfriend, now wife, Denise. And he walked out of it and he said, Denise, what the hell happened there? And he said, and that was a great feeling. He loved that. Um, and you can see that palpably throughout the show. Uh, David Lynch, you know, Twin Peaks especially, he's talked a lot uh, to us about it in the past. Like, watching Twin Peaks and it being the first time he really saw something on television that spoke to him that said, oh, wow, like, this feels like something that maybe I can't make this, but this feels like the kind of thing I would want to make. So those, those are some of the influences we discussed. Do you feel like, uh, just bringing up Scorsese, it's like after Goodfellas, every time I see a mob movie, I'm like weighing it against Goodfellas and The Godfather. Do you feel like now when you watch a TV show that takes place in any you know area that's even near the mob, are you thinking like, even residually, there is like, it, how is this play compared to The Sopranos? No, it's unavoidable. You know, I didn't mention The Shield before when we were talking about The Descendants. That's another one. Just sort of any show where you've, especially if like the main character is a, an angry middle-aged white guy um, engaged in some level of criminal activity, you can't not think of The Sopranos if he has a disapproving wife even more so. Um, <laughs> but it, it's funny you mention that because like Goodfellas hung over this show in the development process because it was relatively recent at that point. It was less than a decade old. Most of the people they wanted to cast had been in Goodfellas. So certain, some people didn't get into the original Sopranos cast because of that. Frank Vincent was the runner-up to play Uncle Junior. And, and Chase said at a certain point, we had too many people from Goodfellas. So we went, we, we, they went with Dominic Keenies instead, who'd been in Godfather Part Two, because he was the only Godfather person. So, um, there are eight Italian actors in the yeah. thing. And it's weird because Scorsese then made Boardwalk Empire with Terry Winter. But it's unclear like whether he ever actually saw or what he thought about The Sopranos. They tried to get him to play himself in that scene where Christopher go and you know his buddies go. Couldn't do it. I liked it. Yeah. Uh, and they he they couldn't get him to do it, so they just got a Scorsese impersonator. So so Chase has never had a conversation with Scorsese that you know of about the show. It didn't. It didn't come up. I mean, I don't. Not sure we ever asked it that specifically. Um, which we probably should have in hindsight, but it was one, like these were like these 90 minute conversations over like lunch at a French restaurant on the Upper East Side and they would, they would be very wide ranging and it's two of us doing the Q&A. So sometimes obvious follow-ups like that were not asked. All right. What I'm saying is I suck. So. <laughs> That's what I was trying to get at, Alan. Thank you. Thank you, you Joseph. Uh, <laughs> um... He didn't, he didn't talk about it that way. I mean, I think, like, the first season is kind of like the first novel or the first album. Like, he'd been dreaming this thing up for a long time. He'd been planning it as a movie. Like, the relationship between Tony and Livia is based on the relationship between Chase and his mom, um, who's maybe not quite that awful, certainly never tried to have him killed. But So there was a lot of that built in. And then after that season, Livia is only in one more season and is barely involved because... A, they'd written her into a corner, and B, Nancy was getting really sick by that point. Um, I, th I think he feels like the last season or so, uh, he didn't quite come out and say it, but it feels like that was the point when he was really starting to get to stretch what the show could be, what he could do, what TV could do. And even though that final arc is maybe not as exciting as Tony versus Uncle Junior and Livia or the Civil War in New York or some of the other things, those individual episodes are amazing. And so if you had to ask me to pick a favorite season, it would either be the first or the seventh. So, 
Dude, did he ever talk about how the show might have been different had the actress playing Tony's mom gotten sick? Yeah, we, t- we talked about that. Well, first of all, I asked him, like, if you had known... He knew going in that she was sick. Like, she was coughing at the first audition, and she was very upfront. She said, look, I'm not doing well, and I kind of need the job just to pay for the health care. Um, and I said to him, like, if you'd known that you would really only get two seasons out of her, would you have gone with someone else? And he said there was no one else. She was so much better than anyone else who came into audition. Like, we're all just sort of, like, doing these bad, you know, Italian mother impressions. And she just seemed like she was his mother. So he was never going to choose anybody else. But when I said, like, well, what would you do? He said, well, there was a problem, which is, like, again, they'd written her into a corner. She had tried to have Tony whacked. Um, Season three, before she died, they were planning it, is, if you remember, season two ends. She gets arrested with the stolen uh, tickets from the Rico thing. Uh, with the Davy Scatino's sporting goods store. And so season three's main arc was g- going to be Tony has to be nice to his mother. Tony has to suck up to Livia to get her to not testify against him. And I guess if they had done that, it, 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 she would have been a little bit like Uncle Junior going forward and that she would have been a presence on the show who caused him a headache and was there for comic relief, but not really central to the plot anymore because I'm not sure they could have. Um, so, and I, I, think, I think there's to a degree to which she was a great character and a great actress and it was a huge loss but I think the show might have run in place a little bit if she had stayed there and her passing away forced them to reinvent themselves as sad as it was that she was gone it really was I think like one of the best mother-son relationships that's ever been on TV yes (laughs) like you don't need to know anything about the mob to appreciate that woman (laughs) like there's a scene I forget what episode it is like he goes to see her at the nursing home I'm sorry, the retirement community. Uh, and he goes to see her, and he's brought her these macaroons. And she's immediately like, why, why are you bringing me these? I don't want these. What are, you do, what are you doing? And she's complaining about everything. And they have this long conversation that's going, and everything he says is wrong. Everything he does is wrong. He cannot win her approval in the slightest. And as he's getting ready to leave, she's like, you know, leave the macaroons here. Like, she always wanted the macaroons, but she was going to bust his balls as much as possible, uh, you know, until, you know, she got them. Thank you. I would say Lorraine Bracco. Um, I feel like at the time the show was on, I, I really underestimated her. I always felt like she was kind of stiff. I had known her obviously so well as Karen Hill in Goodfellas, and she, you know, as Dr. Melfi, she's much more buttoned up. And in a lot of the scenes with Tony in therapy, which is most of what she does, her, her dialogue delivery could be almost kind of stilted. And I thought, well, this is just someone who's been miscast. And rewatching the show for this taught me a lot about it. But one of the main, one of the best things it taught me was. No, Lorraine Bracco was great. Like, the reason she's uncomfortable a lot of the time is because it's, it's this bad relationship, and she knows it's a bad relationship she has with him because all she wants to do is tell him, you are sick, you are depressed because you're a homicidal gangster, and you cannot get better until you stop doing this. But, like, the ethics and the traditions of, you know, being a psychiatrist will not allow her to ever come right out and say it. And sometimes she gets pretty close and those are often the best therapy sessions, but a lot of the time she has to hang back and fight against what like, she wants to scream in his face about. And as a result, that's why she seems uncomfortable. It's not bad acting. It's a choice. She's really good. So definitely of 
that's the performance that has risen the most in my estimation when I went back to watch it a couple of years ago for this. Yes. Yeah, no, the, the, the interview with Chase that I did the day after the finale aired kind of put me on the map, and it was not exactly a fluke, but sort of a, a tribute to persistence and Jewish guilt uh, and timing, because it's the, the, at either the season seven premiere or the season six premiere, one of the two, they're the, they're the after party at Radio City, uh, and so I'm just wandering around Radio City talk, talking to people, and finally I run into David, and he's standing all by himself. And I say, David, have you figured out yet? And I think it was season six because they didn't know yet whether that was going to be the end. But I said, David, have you figured out yet where you're going to be after the finale airs? And he says, I, I don't know yet. I'm probably going to go to France, but I'm not sure. I said, well, would you be okay talking to me, even if it's from France, the day after the finale airs? And he said, yes, absolutely, I will do that. And that was the last we spoke of it for a very long time until like there were maybe three episodes of the entire series left to go. And I called up his assistant, Jason Mentor, who you know, did a bunch of jobs on the show, including being a location scout. And, and I said, Jason, you know, I'm just calling to schedule this interview with David, figure out the logistics, because I think he's going to be in France. And Jason says, um, I, I have to get back to you, Alan. And he calls me back a day later, very uncomfortable, says, Alan, I'm, I'm sorry, David's not going to do it. I said, what? He says, David decided I do he doesn't want to do any interviews after he spoke to you, he decided he didn't want to do any interviews with the show, and so I'm sorry, he's not going to do it. And I just felt crushed. I'm like, well, what am I going to do now? So I turned to Terry Winter, who had often been a really good source on the show for me. I said, well, Terry, what am I supposed to do here? David said he was going to do it. And so then over the next like couple of days, Terry and I mounted a joint guilt offensive <laughs> on Chase. And I think eventually just Terry said, David, you said you were going to do it. You got to do it. Uh, and as a result of that, David reluctantly got me on the phone the next morning and we talked about it and he didn't explain anything at the time, but it got enough pickup that like that became my calling card for a while. But the other thing that helped about writing about the show back then was just writing about the episodes because this, this and Mad Men are my two favorite shows to write about ever. Like there's just something, whether you want to say you might like The Wire or The Simpsons or Breaking Bad more than any of these, I just feel like there's just more density to what's happening in an episode of The Sopranos than almost anything else on TV. And so before that, when I'd written recaps, they would just be, oh, I like this, I didn't like that, this worked, this didn't, this character's annoying, this character isn't. And when I was writing about Sopranos, I would be writing about theme. And now that's what I try to do as much as I can, and that tends to be the shows I pick to do weekly recaps of, which I don't do a lot of anymore just because there's too much TV. But when I do, I try to th find things I can dig into not as deep, but, you know, along similar lines. All right, let me go here. Yes. Um, on that as well, I, I used to read your recaps in real time. Yes. And I always remember the commenters, commentators, yeah. who were so nice to each other. Oh, God. Also had such amazing insights. Yes. How much of that did you read, and did that affect, um, you know, your recaps for television? I, I mean, I don't... It's a sad fact, like Rolling Stone got rid of their, their comments a few months after I started there, and at that point I was glad to see them go, because, yes, I know. 
But no, but even like when at Uproxx and in the later days of HitFix, it feels it felt like the comments had already gone downhill. I had worked really hard when I had that like blog spot you know, site to police. I would read every comment. I would police them. I had like a series of rules for people if you're allowed to comment that all basically boiled down to don't be an asshole. Um, uh, and I worked really hard, and people seemed to appreciate it. And I would hear other people say exactly what you said, like your commenters are great. They were often smarter than I was. They would notice things about shows that I didn't. On, on Mad Men, when they introduced Conrad Hilton in an episode without saying who he was, like six people in a row say, I think that was Conrad Hilton, you know? Um, and so that was really nice, but it just it became a harder and harder thing to do as it went along. Um, I think in part just because there be, started to be more and more people coming in and they just weren't ready to be lectured to. And there was also less time for me to police the comments because Again, there's too much TV. And now you're making a show for, like, another service, Justin? I think so. One that I dare people to find. <laughs> DC Universe. DC Universe. <laughs> now you'll never find it. Uh, well, I did want to talk about a little bit, because one of the things I love about the way you write about TV is you've always talked about it as starting a conversation, which yes. was what your comment sections were, were these, like, really in-depth conversations. It felt like people were like, well, Alan's taking this seriously. I'm going to also take it seriously. In the comment section, it was this, became these like really great forums. And I feel like when people started to kind of like root for TV shows in the way they would like a sports team, it yes. became harder for that to happen. Yeah, no, everyone, everyone becomes really partisan about everything now. And we know about this in other walks of life, but even in TV, it's crazy. So you didn't even bring it up. I'm going to bring it up myself. There, HBO has a show called Succession. Uh, how, many of you, how many of you like Succession? Okay, there we go. All right. So I'm the heathen in the room who does not like Succession. And yes, thank you. Boo me. That's fine. Okay. Boo. Keep booing. No. Yes. Okay, and that's fine. Not like some shows you're just not on the right wavelength for, and I, I believe that, and that's okay. And I'm, you know, but what I'm saying is, when I would mention online that I did not like Succession, I would get the equivalent of those boos. <laughs> People are like angry because it implies that if I don't like it, I am judging them for not liking it, or I'm in some way implying that they are wrong or lesser for not liking it. Whereas it used to be like you would read a. I would read a review of something I disagreed with, and I would find it really interesting. Like, why do they think this way? Like, why did Roger Ebert give Die Hard two stars? You know, he really, really hates Deputy Chief Dwayne Robinson. Like, is, is Deputy Chief Dwayne T. Robinson that bad? And I would think about it. I'm like, well, yes, he is bad, but the movie is still great. Like, I like doing that, and I feel like it's the same thing like when I write a mixed review of something now. People get really upset. They're like... Was it good? Was it not good? Should I be watching it? And I'm like, read the review. I think some parts of it work, some parts of it don't. If the parts I describe working sound interesting to you, maybe you can watch it. But everyone just wants to be like team this or team that. Uh, and it, it's kind of a bummer. Yeah, and I also feel like, and you've t you talk about this a lot, that, that now because there is so much TV there's less of a, a willingness to give it a few episodes. And I, I wonder if just when you're watching a new show, uh, say something on DC Universe, how many, <laughs> how many episodes do you allow yourself to watch for that? Like, you have to wait till X till it gets good. It really varies. Like, there's, there are shows now I turn off after 15 minutes. Uh, and sometimes I'm wrong. Like, sometimes I turn off a show after 15 minutes, and then I hear a month later, oh, you should go back and watch it. It wasn't what you thought. But, like, I'm not writing about the 15 minutes I watched. And that's sort of how I justify it is. 
like I'm, if I'm going to review something, I will watch a bunch of episodes. Maybe not all the ones I've been given, but I'll watch a lot. But in terms of how much patience I will give a show, it, it really there's no formula because some of it is just how much time do I have? Like it, you know, right now it's summer. It's a little bit slower, so I will watch more episodes of something than I would in say September. Um, some of it is do I like the the show that I think it could be enough to wait for it to become that show? And sometimes it becomes that. Breaking Bad became that. Clearly, you know, the first season has some ups and downs, but it became that. Parks and Rec became that. Um, HBO had this show called Hung with Thomas Jane as like a male gigolo. And I'm like, I, I kept feeling like it was on the verge of, of getting over that particular hump. Uh, I'm sorry, that's bad. Uh, I felt like it was on the verge of crossing whatever line I wanted it to cross, and he never did. But I watched at least two seasons of that show because I always felt like it was close even though it was never really working while I was watching it. Uh, sure, go. We talk, we talk about that. We talk about like, if you had to go back and do it again, would you do anything different? Would you make like the cut, the black fr frame shorter, something? And he's like, no, I stand by everything I did. Um, <laughs> no, he does. Like, okay. but uh, the, uh, yes, I, th I think so. But it's also it's very frustrating to him. And what happened? And what happened after the book was published was exactly what he was afraid was going to happen, which was someone read an early copy of it, you know, published a story saying. Chase says Tony dies in Final <laughs> Soprano scene. And then everyone else on the internet, without reading the book, wrote up stories inspired by that first story, saying, you know, Tony, you know, a new book claims Tony Soprano dies at the end, according to this other guy who read it. Uh, and so it was exactly what he feared it would be. And I, like, he actually had some second thoughts and tried to talk us into cutting that whole section out of the book before it got published. Um, but it's... Is this a Soprano book with nothing about the ending in it? <laughs> it, all, it? It could have been. It's a Soprano book with nothing fresh about the Russian because he really hates talking about the Russian almost more than he hates talking about the, the ending. And Matt had done a panel with uh, David and Terry and Steve Buscemi uh, about a year before we did the book, and so we just published a transcript of that, of them talking about Pine Barrens, so that we wouldn't be forced to ask him about the Russian in it. And I remember we were, doing, we were doing one interview that was going long and he was indulging us and it went about like at least a half hour to 45 minutes over our allotted time. And all of a sudden I said the word the Russian and Dave was like, all right, I got to go. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> right. I yes. I talked about that before about just sort of aping the most superficial aspects. It's like I'm going to do this thing exactly the way the Sopranos did it or I'm going to take the flashier elements. The things, that, the things that I wish people would do more is just sort of like trying to execute a vision and that's a, that's a hard thing to sell. You know that as much as anybody. Like you can go into I've a failed many times. <laughs> yes. No, but you can go in but even pitching something. If you go into a room and you tell an executive I'm making this thing that is like this other thing you're going to have a much easier time selling it, right? Absolutely. Okay. Whereas the thing about The Sopranos was it wasn't really like anything else. There were certain elements 
of the Godfather, certain elements of this or that, but mostly it was its own thing. And some people are still doing that, you know. I would stack The Leftovers up against some of the better things that The Sopranos did. So there have been some shows, you know, Fleabag, Atlanta at its best. Some people are able to really just do something brand new, just not enough. There's a lot of, like, really B-plus, A-minus shows in peak TV that are very good examples of a kind of thing, but not special enough that, like, I imagine I'm going to write a book about them when they're approaching their 20th anniversaries. Probably, I'm taking a break from book writing at the moment just because we, I've, I've had, doing these is all consuming on top of having a day job and I've had some stuff going on at home that needs to be tended to. So it'll probably be another year before I start writing something, but I'm going to do another book. Um, Matt and I had talked about doing a Deadwood book together and we went and we pitched it to several publishers who we've worked with in the past and they all said they didn't see enough of a market for it. So Matt at that point, you know, I gave, he, he got my blessing to go off and do this Kickstarter about it and they raised $150,000 from people who want to get the book. So clearly there was a market for it, but it's tough. I, when I tried to sell The Revolution Was Televised, nobody wanted it. Um, I think one publisher offered me like barely anything. I published it myself, that wound up taking off. But in terms of doing a book specifically about a show, I would have to think about the show. Like I could, I could probably do a wire book tomorrow, but like where I just take the old essays and put them into a book form. That almost feels a little too easy, but I, I could do that. The, yeah, thank you. <laughs> right, so maybe, I'll, maybe I'll do that. One of the things that was, that was sort of fun about this as opposed to the Breaking Bad book, which was also fun to do, the Breaking Bad book, it was mostly the things I had written online, cleaned up, summary writing, n like, but maybe like 15% of it was completely new. This, like 90% of it is new. There's a few essays here and there. There's one like uh, for an episode called The Ride, uh, which is the one where like the, the carnival ride breaks down while Janice and the baby are on it. Uh, that's almost word for word for what I wrote for the Star Ledger back then. Almost all of it is stuff Matt and I wrote for this book, which was really fun to do. So I would A, have to find a show that people care enough about to want to buy it, and B, like that I love enough to want to write this much material about, and that's hard to do. Like I'd love to write a leftovers book. I think that would be a very hard thing to sell to a publisher again. Um, so I, I will figure something out. What? A homicide book. I will consider it, Des, for you. level of popularity, Game of Thrones far surpassed what Sopranos did. I don't, it's not remotely as good a show. Um, I enjoyed watching Game of Thrones, but it's, it's just not. Um, that's going to be the hard thing, is finding a show that can be as great as The Sopranos was and also reach as large of an audience as The Sopranos did, and the fact that it was one of the first of its kind gave it an unfair advantage that show X coming down the pike now is just not going to happen. So it, it's going to be really hard. Like, there... I believe one day we will see a better drama than The Sopranos, but how many people are going to watch it? Don't know. Thank you. Sure. 
I have not. No. No, like we could have done something where we went and talked to a lot of people, uh, but I think once Chase agreed to talk, knowing sort of how how sort of deep his roots were in every aspect of things, uh, it just it seemed like it made more sense to just do the here's a section with essays on every episode. Here's us talking to David. Every now and then I would reach out to some other people. So I would reach out to Terry if David didn't remember something. I talked to the show's casting director, Jason Minner, a handful of other people here and there to fill in some gaps. But that was about it. Um, yeah. Why? Is there, are there certain things that, are, that would be of interest? No, and he and he talks about Ro he talked about Robin with us for a while because he said basically the reason Carmela didn't sleep with anyone until season five was basically because Robin Green would not allow it. You know, <laughs> sort of the, the one of the rare instances where he let himself sort of be bulldozed by someone else on the staff because she just kept arguing, no, Carmela wouldn't do it, she wouldn't do it. So, yeah, I mean, it is interesting just in terms of he's such a big personality, not you know outwardly so, but in a writer's room, I can imagine that he's such a big personality in a writer's room. And I wonder, did he ever talk about like the rewrite process when you get a script back? Would he just take it by himself and rewrite it or would it be? It, it kind of varied. Like if you look at the season four scripts, for instance, in the back half of that season, they were running into just a lot of problems creatively. And so every episode has like four, five, six names on the script, which is never a good sign. That's just not good when that, but that's what was happening because they would sort of send people off piecemeal and, you know, Terry would write the mob plot and Robin and Mitchell would write, you know, what was going on in Tony's and Carmelo's marriage and things like that. Um, but uh, he does go in relative depth about how they would break a season and break episodes. Yeah. And how much time, like, you know, normally on like a network show, you get like 10 weeks before you start shooting, you know, so you have to have a certain amount of scripts ready. Did he talk about, like, how much pre-production would each season of The Sopranos have before they, like, got into the actual production of the show? I don't remember the exact answer to that, but that one of the reasons that the gaps between the seasons started getting longer was just he started needing more and more time to, to prep and to write it and to figure out, like, when it was going to end and how it was going to end. So that, that could only exist in HBO if you tried to tell NBC you need more time. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like Better Call Saul, like the gaps are starting to grow as well. It's not yeah. going to air at all this year. because. And I ran into Peter Gould last night at the, the TCA Awards, not to drop a name, but I specifically like said, is, there, is the fact that they're making this Breaking Bad sequel movie, did that delay you at all? And he said, no, it's not that. It's just like we've had a harder time breaking the season. So, Interesting. But, it's, it, but it sounds like it's going to be good. So, uh, did you ever talk to Chase about if he thought about making another show or if he was approached about it? I mean, he was developing a show. I think it was called Ribbon of Dreams. It was going to be a mini series about the early days of Hollywood. And basically, he was developing it for a while, and HBO decided not to do it because they thought it was going to be too expensive. I don't think he ever wants to do another series. That's one of the reasons why he's making Newark as a movie as opposed to uh, even a mini series at this point. That's just too much work for him, I think, at this age. And also just having done The Sopranos. Like, he, he did The Sopranos. He said, all right, now I, I've conquered television. I'm going to finally get to make my movie. After all these years of just wanting to be a movie guy, he made this movie not fade away. It absolutely tanked at the box office. And even though he felt it was good, it just got ignored. And I think that created a degree of disillusionment. 
And then just the, the movie business has evolved since then, you know, in a direction that far more people than I have written about, uh, that w there wouldn't be a lot of room for the kind of things he would want to make anyway. So, yeah, I think, I'm not sure what, what if anything, he's going to do after Newark, but I'm looking forward to seeing that at least. So HBO passed on his next show after yes. Sopranos? Well, HBO, Take some balls. HBO's been in some regime change, so <laughs> a lot of the people he worked with are long gone. So, and then some of the people who worked under the people he worked with are also long gone. So interesting. Anybody else? Yep. Have you ever attempted to write your own series or, or anything like that? Because as Justin said, you, you understand the medium so well and so many, um, it seems like you could do it. Um, you know, if you're writing for a Shutter Film Film Festival, that just feels like it's something you could do. I mean, I've noodled with ideas often. You know, it's, it's the, the old joke about how every writer's got like a half finished novel in a drawer. I don't, I've never even gotten necessarily that far, but I've thought about it now and then. But I really like what I do, and I think there's, there's sort of this stereotype of like critics as failed artists, and I've never thought of myself that way. Like I think it, it would probably be really exciting to go and you know work on a show for a season or, or two, but I really like the, the role that I have, and I still enjoy doing it despite the fact that it is exponentially harder to do now than it was when I started just for the sheer amount of things and the, the fact that I'm writing in a much different way than I used to. Um, so I'm happy doing it. And also, Justin, how many like 45-year-olds do you know breaking into uh, <laughs> the screenwriting business at this point? I'm one of the older people on, in, on my, any writing staff I'm on, and I'm 38, so it's tough. Yeah, so I'm good, is my point. <laughs> but I do, I, I, I think one of the things that I just personally really enjoy about your writing is is that it feels like a you're always you only write about the shows you get excited about yeah. so you can feel that when you're reading it and i think a lot of times that stereotype you're talking about with criticism will come from people who and i i think you know because they haven't had as much success as you've had they're recovering shows they don't want to be covering yeah. and so they're you know you can read in their work that they're not happy. And it does read while you're writing about your shows that you love the shows you're covering. I mean, remember you, when you stopped covering Walking Dead, you're like, I don't like watching it anymore. And I, and, and I was going to bring that up. That actually, like, if it had been up to me, I would have stopped covering that show like two, three years before I did. <laughs> um, and not that it was bad at that point. I was just sort of felt like I had seen everything it had to offer and I had nothing new to say about it, but it was so popular that I couldn't in good conscience, you know, it was such a good traffic driver and all of that. And eventually, like, I, t I had a long talk with an editor. He says, no, you, you can stop. It's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll get that elsewhere. Um, but sometimes it's weird. Some of my favorite shows to recap, and I'm not sure I would do it now, but, but back in, like, my earlier days of doing it, one of my favorite shows to write about was Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, <laughs> which was such a bad show, but it was bad in so many really interesting ways. Oh, my God, I yeah. I loved every single week. Not like I wanted to pile on it, but just sort of, I was fascinated that a guy as smart and as talented as Aaron Sorkin could be making so many different mistakes in one thing. And I figured, if I write about every episode of this, maybe by the end I will understand how this happened. <laughs> and I'm not sure I did, but I tried. And then he gave you the newsroom. You'll, I'll still see tweets occasionally, like, imagine what the newsroom episode about, you know, this scandal would be. And no, thank you. When you <laughs> just, just the, the newsroom was set 18 months in the past. Yes. <laughs> Have you ever seen a show make such a weirdly specific choice as that? I mean, 
mean, I think Treme was set like around a similar distance, but it's, but that was done because it wanted to be tied to Katrina. This was done so that Sorkin could kind of make all of his characters seem smarter than the actual <laughs> news people of the time because they all had the benefit of Aaron Sorkin's hindsight. It was... Uh, as a, as the, a guy, the guy's a genius, but he has some really big blind spots. Yeah. <laughs> We don't know that they're going to bring it back yet. They, the pilot is being retooled, um, and this is—I just saw David Milch last night. They did. We gave him a Television Critics Association award, um, and so that was sort of a special thing. That's really the reason I'm here in California and doing this book event today was because I wanted to come give him the award last night. That's a very special show for me, uh, and that's one where I'm really skeptical of the idea of them doing a revival. I have seen a draft of that script, uh, and it seems very much in the vein of. Like, did you watch that show all the way to the end? Okay. So the show by the end, not that it was a bad show, but it really was not the show it began as. It was just sort of, here's a, here's a like, very good meat and potatoes police procedural where Dennis Franz is playing someone who is named Andy Sipowitz and says funny things, but is not really, bears very little resemblance to the guy when the show began. That's what this script felt like. It's sort of, it's not a sequel to the David Milch version of NYPD Blue. It's a sequel to, you know, the show it eventually became when not nearly as many people were watching. And, you know, I'm nostalgic. I'm a sucker. That show made me. It made my career. So uh, if it ever does get on the air, I will watch every episode of it. But I'm very skeptical as of now. What is your favorite show to write about now and why? Ah, let me think. Um, the... The weird thing is a lot of the shows that I feel like I would love doing weekly stuff about are on streaming, and so I can't. Like, I wrote, like, a 4,000-word essay about Fleabag uh, after the most recent season aired. I think it's the best thing I wrote all year. I really like that. Uh, and if that show was airing weekly, I would go to town on Fleabag. Like, I would just go crazy. Russian Doll is another one. But with, with, with streaming shows, I basically get two hits. I write something before it airs. I write something after it's done, and that's about it. Um, Better Call Saul is still really fun to write about, but sometimes that show, The Americans, there's a couple others where like I think they're great and they're obviously like, I should be writing about them every week, but I will sometimes sit at the computer for a very long time saying, I don't know what I want to say here. Like it's it was the damnedest thing with The Americans especially, like that was one of the great shows of the last 10 years and it killed me like writing every recap of it because it just, it took forever, and I never felt happy with how the recaps turned out, even though I thought they were all mostly pretty good. But there was just something in the nature of that show, despite it being great, that didn't seem to mesh well with whatever my dumb process is, I guess. I don't know. We can add an undumb process. We, we can, okay. Well, <laughs> now let's see if we have any, anybody else. All right, well, oh. Oh. Go for it. Yes. That has certainly helped. Though the funny thing is, it feels, and maybe that gets back to what I was talking about before. It's kind of harder to do recaps of a lot of these intensely serialized shows because it's this thing and it's this phrase that I hate. I hate it so much, and I tweet about it. I tweet about it and write about it so often that my editor, Rolling Stone, like has started like 
ordering me to stop including it in reviews because he feels I made that point, which is 10-hour movie. Like, we're making a 10-hour movie. Fuck you, you're making a television show. Uh, no one wants to watch a 10-hour movie. Like, if someone showed me a 10-hour cut of Lawrence of Arabia and they screened it at the Cinemarama Dome, I would walk out after four hours or so because I just don't, like... 10 hours is not a good length for an intensely serialized story unless your name is David Simon or unless you've, like, worked closely with David Simon, you know, or a couple of other people. And so there's a lot of these shows right now that are purely serialized in a way that The Sopranos was not. And that was a nice thing to go back and watch again. Like, there's clear stories in every episode. There's a clear theme to every episode. So in fact, like it comes up in the book, we t uh, no, I think we cut it out because it didn't, it didn't go in a fruitful enough direction. But we talked to Chase about this idea of like the shows afterwards being more purely serialized, and he didn't even understand how that was possible. He's like, why would you make an hour of TV without there being a story in that hour and without there being a theme and something satisfying within that hour? And this is the guy who like got off on frustrating his audience, and even he understood that like you gotta you gotta give them something. Um, so I think sometimes it's really hard to write about these things. Like, here is hour five of a ten-hour story. There's only so many things you can say at that point. And that's often why I wind up gravitating more towards things that have some kind of episodic element in them. And those tend to be the shows that I'm recapping a lot more these days, at least when they're airing in a weekly fashion. So. Yeah, I mean, it... Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It would, have been, it would have been very different. I mean, I've talked to actors on the show, and they read drafts that Milch wrote over the years, and they were all very different from the script that they ultimately wound up making. And I think you look at this script, and what it is is it's essentially like the end that season three had, only a little bit more definitive and a little bit more emotional. And it's also informed by the fact that it took them ten years you know, plus to get back together, and the fact that Milch is very sick at the time he was writing this. So all of those things went into it. So... Had he made another season at the time, it would have been different themes, different stories. He's talked about, like, there was a lawsuit against Hearst, and so even though it feels like he wins absolute victory at the end of season three, that's not what actually happened historically. They would have dealt with the fire, probably at some point there was a fire that burned down the entire camp and the gem, and that's not even discussed in the movie, even though most of the buildings have been rebuilt with brick. So there's a lot of different things he could have done. This is what he wound up doing. It's not perfect because the conditions under which it was made were not perfect, but I'm, that, that one I'm still really glad we got. That was special to me. Yes. Um, it's funny. Um, my favorite scene of the show is a really, really minor one from an episode I don't like from season four, which is most people's least favorite season. Uh, it's an episode called Watching Too Much Television. And among the plots is, it's mainly like an Assemblyman Zellman episode, because that's what America wanted, was a whole hour <laughs> on Assemblyman Zellman. And so it's Assemblyman Zellman and Vondi Curtis Hall as his old buddy, who are like helping Tony run this scam uh, with HUD, and they're flipping houses in Newark. And one of the subplots is Tony finds out that Zellman is dating Irina. And he finds this out like while they're in a gym locker room, right after Old Girl by the Shy Lights has come on the radio, and he's talked about it with Vondi Curtis Hall. So the end, the very end of the episode, Tony is in his car, he's driving around, he's singing along to the radio like he always does, and O-Girl comes back on the radio. 
and it's just Jim Gandolfini in the front seat of the car acting against thin air. He's singing along to the song, and he's so happy, and then halfway through, he starts to get really upset, and this wave of emotions goes over him. And by the end of it, he's driven up to Zellman's house, marches upstairs, takes off his belt, and whips Zellman with the belt while Irina watches, and he makes like Rick from Casablanca. He's like, you know, of all the girls in New Jersey, you had to pick mine. Uh, and it's just, it, like, that to me is sort of the essence, maybe not of the show, but of Gandolfini, and that was the best thing about rewatching it, was getting to really appreciate the idea that, like, there's, I used to think that there was some kind of TV Mount Rushmore of drama, and it's got this show on it, and it's got Deadwood on it, and it's got Mad Men, or, and The Wire, Breaking Bad, like, maybe you would have to have five shows on it. Or if you're doing drama acting, it would be Jim, it would be Cranston, it would be John Hamm, it would be Elizabeth Moss, or something like that. No. Jim Gandolfini gets his own mountain. Like, watching it again, and watching scenes like that, as great as those guys are, and I've written books about their shows, there is no one who has ever done quite the sorcery of acting that James Gandolfini did on the show. And that scene, again, it's a guy singing along to the radio. There's no co-star, there's no nothing, there's no background. They probably just shot it on a soundstage with most of the lights out. And it's amazing. And I could, I could pull it up on YouTube and watch it again right now, but I have to sign the books that hopefully you nice people are going to buy. And I thank you for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.